Soldiers of Satan. All right, let's go. <laughs> to a night that we're going to remember for years to come. Here, here. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. I'm Leo. I'm Lauren. I'm Trevor, and we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 119. Lauren and I are quarantined here at the Speakeasy Studio, and Leo is pumped in via his horrific haunted castle in beautiful downtown Eagle Rock. <laughs> we are self-isolating but still able to bring you fun horror-centric conversations with guests from the comfort of their own homes using the miracles of modern technology. There are so many terrific new horror films being released to VOD and streaming services. Our guests this time around brought the heavy metal. We are joined by writer Alan Trezza and director Mark Myers from the new horror flick We Summon the Darkness. At time of release, it's available on VOD and digital today. On this episode, Mark and Alan talk about locating 80s Twinkies boxes, pyrotechnics, heavy metal, satanic panic, and the origin of the devil sign. Let's start the initiation. This is Mark Myers, and this is Alan Trezza, and we are being summoned for the The Boo Crew. You don't think we can fend for ourselves? Boys, do you want to have a threesome with us? How many more children must die in Satan's name? Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. It is not too late. Join me in this fight. Incinerate these demons and send them back to hell. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studios, an acclaimed producer, writer, and director who got his start with films like The Short 86 Customer and is part of the team behind the documentary Witnessing in 2003. He made an incredible impact with his very own feature-length debut, the award-winning Approaching Union Square that he wrote and directed in 2006, followed by films like 2017's Brilliant My Friend Dahmer that transformed Ross Lynch into the high school version of the serial killer based on the graphic novel and memoir of Dahmer's teenage friend, John Backdurf. Also here with us is another phenomenally talented producer, writer, and director. He shares his knowledge, skill, and love of screenwriting with his students as instructor at the New York Film Academy here in Burbank. His first feature he wrote, the horror comedy Burying the X, ended up being directed by the legendary Joe Dante, the man behind films like Gremlins, The Howling, and many more. It has an incredible cast, including the late Anton Yelkin, Ashley Green, and Alexandra D'Addario. It earned lots of acclaim and several awards upon its release in 2014. Together, our guests have teamed up for the Screamfest award-winning heavy metal satanic horror adventure, We Summon the Darkness. It's tremendous. Currently holds a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. It stars Alexandra D'Addario, Maddie Heisen, Amy Forsyth, and Johnny Knoxville. At time of release, it's available on VOD and Digital HD April 10th. Here to talk about it are its director, Mark Myers, and writer, Alan Trezza. Yeah! Woo! Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Thanks holding, so much, guys. We're holding up devil's horn. Right. Hail Satan, yes, you guys. Are, yeah. <laughs> we always are. <laughs> Here's some geeky trivia. Do you guys know the genesis of the devil's horns? No, tell us, Treza. What is the genesis? Well, um, actually came to prominence uh, from Ronnie James Dio of the band Dio. 
Uh, and it was a gesture that his Italian grandma used to do. And it does not mean devil or wickedness. It's actually a protection from evil. So this, uh, the devil's horn, actually has nothing basically satanic to do whatsoever. Just, uh, you know, another thing that the, the religious right took and perverted. That's fantastic. Was that part of the deep research for We Summon the Darkness? Yeah, and also part of, uh, you know, growing up in the 80s and uh, listening to Dio and Slayer and Metallica and King Diamond. Nice! (laughs) Well, this film takes place right in our formative years as horror fans, and that would be the era of video stores and discovery of all those magical films that would shape our fandom right from the video box art, and that would be the 80s. So what are those early memories when you both were first impacted by the horror genre? Well, The Shining... You got to, for me, I got to just start with The Shining. I mean, on on so many levels, that remains for me as a writer and a director, just the, the pinnacle of a prestige horror film. Also coming from a director who doesn't only do horror. He moves in between all kinds of different, you know, genres. And I find that even that much more extraordinary. And then at the heart of it is Jack Nicholson, who's just awesome. And that rattled me when I saw it. And it's probably the genre film that I've returned to the most over the years. Alan, how about you? Anything from David Lynch films to John Carpenter films to Toby Hooper, it runs the gamut, but specifically, uh, you know, films that inspired this movie, We Summon the Darkness, uh, I'd have to say uh, the great documentaries like Heavy Metal Parking Lot, Paradise Lost about the West Memphis Three, as well as the awesome documentary, The Decline of Western Civilization, Part Two, The Metal Years. Um, Those were huge influences on this. (laughs) Oh, man, those are all amazing. I still remember the first time I saw Heavy Metal Parking Lot. Do you remember in high school when kids would be watching um, Faces of Death? Yes. That was the same appetite of those kinds of movies that I remember coming back to high school on like a Monday and people exchanging ideas of what what they watched, and that would be one of them. See Faces of Death. Yeah, see Faces of Death, get your Fango magazine, and then end up going on Rotten.com on the weekend, see what you can find, see what horrible things you can find. <laughs> so Those I, were the I actually, I think in my office, I have a copy of the Anarchist Cookbook as well. Of course. Alan, this isn't the first time you've worked with Alexandra D'Addario. As we mentioned off the top, she starred in your first film, Burying the Axe, in 2014. Now, her role as Olivia was originally played by horror icon Danielle Harris in the 2008 short film version that preceded it. So take us a little bit on that adventure adventure of transforming your first short into what ended up becoming a Joe Dante film. Cool. You guys did your research. You know about the short film. Uh, It also starred John Francis Daly of Freaks and Geeks fame. Yes. uh, Bearing the X was an idea that I had, uh, God, going back to 2008, I'd say. Always been a a lifelong fan of horror films and the different subgenres. And at the time, um, this is going way back, no one had really done a, a zombie comedy. Now uh, everyone seems to have done one, but back then uh, no one had really done a zombie com. So uh, my take on it was to do a sort of a love triangle that uh, explores someone trying to get over a a relationship after the person uh, dies. Uh, The only problem is the night that he meets the girl of his dreams that's played by Alexandra Daddario, his ex comes back from the grave as a zombie. So he literally cannot get 
her out of his life. So it started off as a short film, and then I expanded it into a feature. Uh, it's made it, it made its way, in, thankfully, into Joe Dante's hands, uh, who read it and loved it. And um, from there, it was a long three or four years of trying to convince people that audiences want to see zombies. This was before The Walking Dead. This was before uh, World War Z. But when those uh, properties hit and made a ton of money, we finally got a little bit of money to go off and, and do our movie. And um, that's how Burying the X came to be. So talk a little bit about the idea for We Summon the Darkness coming together and how you and Mark found each other for this journey. Following the release of Burying, uh, I started to think of ideas th that I could do you know, uh, on, a, on a smaller budget, just like I did with Burying, and uh, just sat down at my dining room table where I write all my scripts and just started to write a movie that I wanted to see. That was the mandate. Uh, I didn't care about writing a movie that would sell for a million bucks or writing a movie that, you know, would help me get, get, hopefully get me a job writing a Marvel movie, but just writing a movie that I would be the first person to buy a ticket for. And out of that mandate came um, this movie, which is, you know, about a time in my life that I think we're all familiar with, where parents and religious groups and certain people in Congress uh, got it in their heads that the devil was speaking to the children uh, of the world through heavy metal and Saturday morning cartoons and Dungeons and Dragons. And that's that's just how this came to be. Uh, the script was written very quickly in about four to six weeks. And then came the journey of trying to find uh, the right person to bring this to the screen. And that was a very, very long journey indeed. It took about uh, 18 months. Um, several directors were attached to this at one point or another. And then thankfully, uh, it found its way uh, into Mark Myers's inbox. He read it and uh, we had a conversation and I knew within maybe three or four minutes that we had finally found the perfect person to direct this movie. So, Mark, going to you, you get this script. What what was your take on it? Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just finished my friend Dahmer. I was at a place where um, I just had the ex first experience of my life of going to genre film festivals and having a movie like that play to that very supportive community. And I was like, I would love to sort of, I almost felt like I understood that audience even better after having gone through that experience of going to like Sitges and Fantastic and Fantasia and, and all the experience of meeting all the serial killer aficionados out there in the world that wanted to, you know, meet the guy who knew my friend Dahmer as a teenager. And so when I got this script, I, I honestly felt that it was like the next logical creative step to take like where Dahmer left off as a filmmaker where he's picking up his first murder victim this movie is just full of mayhem and craziness and with a great sense of humor and it was wild and fast and funny and it reminded me a little bit of what it would be like if you had a mashup of Clockwork Orange and if I was in the house during the Manson murders you know just like keep just just that 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 crazy trio of girls trying to you know try really hard to kill people and uh and 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 i and i first read it i thought it was really funny i gave it to my producing partner who's also my wife jody jugenti and i remember sitting in her office and i just watched her read it and watched her laugh out loud and i was like yeah that's what i thought 
And we immediately then, you know, got on the phone and talked to the whole crew of producers that were really passionate about the movie. And I probably had a very similar conversation with them is that I just, you know, for the reasons I just shared with you right now. What do you recall about the writing process on this? The dialogue is extremely witty and sharp and the way the twists play out are done with a, with a terrific sleight of hand. Was it a particular, particularly difficult tone to nail? Not really, uh, because I knew so well the subject matter that I was writing about, and I kind of knew sort of this milieu and this world and the characters that make this world up. I mean, a a lot of the conversations uh, that take place in the parking lot about first concerts that you want to go see and uh, talking about, you know, musicians that have passed like Cliff Burton, those came very, very easily. You might not see the parallel here, but I'm just as much a fan of um, uh, of British comedies uh, as I am a fan of horror. And if you think about it, British comedies, uh, their humor comes from putting people in a terrible situation and then having them just make the situation worse by their actions. So being a fan of, you know, Ricky Gervais's The Office and Coupling and uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, um, I just sort of had fun saying, okay, let's put these guys in a bad situation and let's make their incompetence make it even worse. Right. (laughs) (laughs) The Never Have I Ever Seen is brilliantly written, by the way. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Yeah, a bit of a slow burn. Impact will be directed by Mark Myers. And uh, I remember watching him direct that on set. And uh, I think that was day two uh, or day day three. Day two or three, yeah. And just being like... uh, Guys, we've got a movie here. <laughs> we've got a movie here. <laughs> yeah, we, we made some, I think I'm very happy with all the adjustments we made to the original script, too, that I guess I, you know, through the process, of, this is the first script I've done as a director that I hadn't written. So to find my voice through someone else's writing was a little bit of an exercise, but there were a couple things that I there was a little bit of a history lesson at the top of the script about what the satanic was in context in the 80s. And I just thought, let's just start with a bunny rabbit on the open road uh, and just get right to the fun of it all. And then there was a little bit of a sort of a wink, wink, self-aware sense of humor once in a while that was easy for us to pull out to kind of make it a little bit more authentic. Most definitely. Yeah, we're we're taking great pains to avoid spoilers here, but one of the many things that Mark brought to this was this very grounded sort of realism to the film. It's, it's evident in, in, in all of his past works. Uh, so yes, he really helped to just get to the, the heart of every scene and get to the real emotion of every scene. And uh, yeah, the, the I was <laughs> so upset because the script starts out with, originally started out with this two-page montage, impeccably researched, of different clips uh, from everything from Geraldo Rivera talking about the satanic panic. <laughs> I remember um, those specials. <laughs> yeah, to, to these preachers who uh, used to hold um, bonfires where they would burn Burn uh, heavy metal uh, CDs and albums, uh, and they're all on, they're all on YouTube. They're all on YouTube, and uh, yeah, I must have spent about three or four days just alone writing the first two pages of this thing. And Mark just comes in and says, "Trez, these people just want to get on the road. These people want to see this thing. <laughs> Delete the history lesson, man. They'll get it." <laughs> And uh, yeah, but yeah, a, a lot of the revisions were basically just pairing back and you know getting to the the meat of every scene and getting to the heart of every scene. 
Finding your Alexis Bevan Valor, three stars who pulled his brilliant writing off the page and very much embody these very strong characters like Val, for instance, who always has to pee at the most inappropriate times or the vagabond innocence of Bev and the reckless abandon of Alexis. Talk about guiding those actors towards these amazing performances. Well, ha- have fun. Allow the actors to feel free to experiment and know that it's not about getting it right or wrong, but that we all trust our own instincts. I, I kind of believe that acting is kind of like jazz. You do your preparation. And then when you come there on the day, you, you find out what you're going to give and get from the actors around you. And that sort of fundamentally, I think, carries for me, no matter what genre I might be playing around in. So with them, we just had a really good time and they were always game for the wildest kind of thing that may be in front of us you know to their credit too they did not like it when a stunt a stunty was gonna do the stunt and have the fight instead of them so they'd watch this you know the stunt guys like rehearse it and then they want to jump in and do the fight themselves so they wanted in every moment for it to be their experience and and so that's it i just try to have this like creative space and if i do all my prep work properly with a shot list then i have more than enough time to talk to the actors about what the you know the dramatic thrust is of each and every scene and and in this case there's sort of a pulpy quality to everything's being said and we and the and the jokes are pretty clear so it was a way of just leaning into that stuff and they all have great sense of humor senses of humor themselves so it all just felt sort of natural and fun and the craziest 16 days of my life I'll be sure you know that's that's for sure yeah guys the the girls in this movie are so great Amy and Maddie and Alexandra I was uh, just curious Alexandra's character is such a great sexy psychotic character what was the inspiration for her specifically you know i just wanted to um come up with a uh, person who was a, a natural born leader but the more that we learn uh, about her we realize that she's actually uh just a, another follower and someone who puts on this front of, of being strong and, and independent so just trying to strip strip away uh this sort of alpha female character it was really fun and, and, and interesting. The whole movie is refreshingly not super exploitive and, and you end up with an empowering piece. Was that an intent? And what were the methods of achieving that? Well, I think this original script was obviously relevant on, on so many levels that we just trusted the relevance of what Treza was suggesting about the creation of fear and how that gets people to that's a way to control and empower and power over people I think was um, just in, we just trusted that that was inherent in what was going on. You know, it's not necessarily a film that has some larger feminist message. It's just supposed to be fun. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price. Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas city, go Kevin or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's get into a bit of the production. Where did you actually film this? We filmed this in Winnipeg, Canada. Actually, right outside of Winnipeg in a small prairie town called Selkirk. Wow! I'm actually from the prairies up in Canada. I'm from Saskatchewan, so I know Winnipeg very well. That's wild. The locals sometimes might 
take the gas out of your rental car when you're not looking and siphon it at night. <laughs> that, that's the kind of town it was. But it was also a really kind of nice place to just, you know, make a movie where most of it was around, you know, this one this one house for about three fourths of the production. Was there anything that you recall was a particular challenge to capture on camera? Besides just filming in 16 days with like blood pyrotechnics, stunts and all that in, in a crazy schedule, which was tight and shooting every day where sometimes your call times were four in the afternoon. Cause you had to just shoot until sunrise. You know, there was a couple scenes like later in the movie without giving too much away where we really felt like there was a, in the master bedroom of, of there's a, there's a bunch of characters that come in and out in a very violent way and just shooting all of that in the fight sequences that I had storyboard, but still it takes a lot of work and meticulousness to just sort of pull off all the angles of some of the fights that I felt like once I had finished filming all of the moments of, of those few scenes that happened in that master bedroom, I was like, I don't want to ever go in that room again. That was, that was, that was tough. That was, that was good. You know, <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about the use of practical effects and how did that work? And it looks really fun. Great. I mean, we benefited from these two guys called the Blood Brothers out of uh, Montreal. And they aren't real brothers, but they are total. They're magicians. I just loved working with these two guys. They had all the tricks up their sleeve from the the you know the fire going under the door the all the blood the prosthetics and i had a great first ad who had done a bunch of horror films prior to this and he really just knew how to move the momentum of the day through so we were never really waiting on it um setting up any defects and we could shoot around it until somebody with their prosthetic neck was ready to step into the shot and you know get killed or something like that so it was the first time for me that i've done any of that stuff and to have planned it as much as possible allowed everyone to gather around storyboards and be able to contribute their part to the ultimate goal of each of these shots. And so in the end, it, it just kept getting more and more fun. And, you know, for example, uh, someone would come up to me and be like, well, how much blood do you want underneath this head? I've got the like three foot puddle. I've got the five foot puddle. or I got the seven foot puddle. Which one should we roll out? And then, you know. That's so fun. The Blood Brothers. Awesome. I love it. That's a bit. <laughs> you, uh, you even gave them a cameo, Mark, in the, uh, in the heavy metal concert. They are, yeah. Well, they yeah. totally are metal, so they had to walk through. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> now, what about working with, uh, without giving a spoiler away, there is some great pyro effects, have, as mentioned, including one in particular, orchestrating that scene was that obviously a stunt person getting pyroed or how did that work? That might be the only fire in the film that is a visual effects, a visual effect. Wow. That but, looks so tremendous. Yeah. But you know, to the blood brothers credit, we shot a plate where, you know, cause we're sort of locked off in that wide shot where she runs around. But if I recall the, one of the blood brothers r ran around the area of her path that she ran shining a, a burning flame on like a, a, on a pole up at the ceiling so that once we got in to do the visual effects that the reflection of the, the light coming off the flame would be bouncing off of the ceiling to give it much more of a realistic touch. So there was, there was a lot of collaboration, you know, from them and making sure that all the sort of details are possible. So it wasn't just going into post at the end and, 
sort of adding in one visual effect over there. Let's talk about the world building. It takes place in the late 80s. How deep into achieving that look and feel did you guys go? Well, if you go to Winnipeg <laughs> to start, you know, you might come across a house that is from the 80s and hasn't changed much. But we definitely, you know, with the house, the, the, the production design department from Western Canada that came in was incredible. And uh, just finding all the right furniture, awful wallpaper, awful furniture, even changing the sort of cabinet drawer knobs and as many details as possible, putting up some wood paneling just to all bring it back to the 80s. And then the wardrobe is just so much fun. And, you know, and Treza referenced it before, but for all of us, heavy metal parking lot was a perfect piece of source material for us all to gather around and look at the wardrobe and how the kids cut their heavy metal short sleeves off or didn't wear a shirt at all. And, when their facial um, hair. Facial hair, the mullets or the guy who's 25 dating a 15-year-old girl. Like, you know, just... <laughs> It was just all there for us to reference. And so when you get creatives that remember the 80s personally as well, they can actually just pull upon their own memory and get the right you know, jean jacket to give a back patch to and, and get the right jeans and the whole, the whole package for everyone. And then the same thing goes for the cars and the props and and everything it just keeps it keeps growing and, it, and that's really a really fun part of prep the product placement you know let's not forget jolt cola i mean that was the go-to drink uh you know to keep the party going so. <laughs> yeah i was gonna say where in the, how in the world you guys find vintage twinkies and jolt cola i, I, I still are up it's still up there in winnipeg we just went to the store <laughs> well, i don't know I don't know. <laughs> Well, um, I, I do have an executive producer credit on this. And um, one one of the roles that I had to take on was um, doing some of the product placement clearing. So, you know, I, I called Jolt and a bunch of other manufacturers and they, most of these folks have not changed their logo, but also uh, they did have logos from back in the day that they then sort of PDF'd over to our uh, production designer and art department. So they were they were the coolest jolt, especially um, they're like, you're, you're shooting a movie. You want to feature us? Johnny Knoxville's in it. Alexander Daddario's in it. Mark Myers is directing it. Well, maybe that not, not that last part. And they're, they seriously, they're like, they're like, how many cases do you need? We're going to flatbed it right now. And they, they did. And uh, they were the coolest. That's so great. That whole corner store set is a work of art. Is that a set or is that did you find a gas station corner store? No, that's the, the that's the interior of that same gas station that you see at the top of the film. Oh, cool! Um, yeah, and we just converted the inside and took out any of the modern logos and appliances as much as possible, or they were all shoved in one corner that you know we shot around. We shot those scenes night for day, so it's amazing to me that we're shooting those at like eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night, even later, because the call times kept you know creeping later and later every day. So our uh, amazing DP, Taryn Anderson, you know, 
blew huge lights through those windows to kind of give us a daylight feel. Oh, that looks incredible. Yeah, the one giveaway that it was in Canada was all the old Dutch potato chips on the, on the shelf, which I've only ever seen in, in the prairies in Saskatchewan and Winnipeg. <laughs> oh, I missed that. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, that's, now that's all I'm going to see every time I see it. Uh, yeah, it's a very particular chip brand, and that's where you get uh, ketchup chips and dill pickle chips, which are flavors like really only available up in Canada and only made by Old Dutch. We'll fix that in the reissue of the phone. <laughs> Another thing, the sound of this world is incredibly captivating. The score itself is so unique and ends up becoming another character in the film. And I realize you got the wonderful Timothy Williams behind that, who also did David Yarabeski's Brightburn. And he's worked on everything from the Exorcist TV series that I know Leo is a huge fan of and Get Out and Guardians of the Galaxy. I think he conducted on yeah. it and Annabelle. How did you discover him and what was the goal in order to give this? such a what becomes a very unique sonic stamp about midway through the film well I, I at a certain point you meet with you know the composer timothy williams it becomes clear what the kind of tone is and and, and it was a kind of movie where we wanted to make it for you know a t current audience but have enough of a sort of homage to those throwbacks like halloween and carrie and when i first came across uh tim williams and we first skyped he gave me this great tour of his studio where he has a collection of 80s synthesizers. So not only did he artistically fit it, he also had all the equipment ready to just get right into that, that score. And it was, a, it was really an organic, it was an, honestly a really organic process. By the time I got to that place in the journey of making the movie, we kind of knew how much we wanted to push it or hold back to allow the suspense to happen either through the use of music or just the eeriness of the imagery or if we wanted to dial up the anxiety or not. And he just, he just kept giving us great score through every pass. It just felt very natural. I also was mixing another movie at the exact same time that he was sharing those cues. And so it was a very schizophrenic time for me because I was mixing human capital at the exact same moment. Also incredible use of Belinda Carlisle's Heaven on Earth and T'Pau's Heart and Soul. Do those songs hold a place in your heart? Do you guys remember hearing those? <laughs> to the credit of the first editor, we had two editors on it. You know, we all knew it was like these three female leads. And so it's like, what are the great hard rock songs with a great you know female lead and let's let's just start there and see if there's any songs there that really worked and that's kind of that's what led us down that road yeah and heaven is a place on earth um there is a certain group of individuals in this film that we discover are actually like religious fanatics. So if they were going to blast anything, they would blast uh, something like heaven is a place on earth. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I was actually surprised that that version of the song was actually by a, a cover by a band called cover sauce. That's what happens when you have a limited uh, music uh, budget. You go for the covers. Or less than limited. <laughs> <laughs> Resourcefulness. It's important. We, we also noticed that Alexandra D'Addario is a producer on the film. What did that look like and what was her role in helping this become a reality through her support? Well, she was the first actor to sign on and we, you know, she's so well known and a star and a talented one. I think that first by signing on, it helped give us a little bit of a jetpack to the whole project and move it along. And, and with that, she's also a great leader on set, especially to the cast and sets a tone amongst of, of professionalism among them. 
And she just was at every step of the way tracking and participating in any, any way she could to help move the, the movie forward. And, you know, indie, indies are hard and sometimes you need a, an entire, you know, tribe of producers to move it along because everyone's got their own connections and, and ways in which they can contribute to the whole. And, and we all did, we all did our part, but Dario, I think this movie would never would have gotten made if Dario hadn't signed on when she did. This film also has amazing supplemental material. The poster art that was just released recently is incredible. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, there's been a lot of fan art that already came out prior to that. And we were excited to create this theatrical poster. And personally, I kind of chimed in at a certain moment and just said, can we not do one that just shows a lot of famous faces? Can we do something that's just a little more metal? And where was there a place in the movie where the title We Summon the Darkness doesn't obviously point to who's good and bad in the film and leave that a little more vague for and mysterious for the viewer to then discover when they get in? And that led me to sort of suggest this kind of, I guess, an homage to uh, the It Follows poster that's very vertical in nature, but just to do it with another car in the heavy metal parking lot wasn't the approach. But that that moment around the bonfire to me with all six of our main characters was the perfect little moment that would go with the title We Summon the Darkness. And from there, it just, you know, it just took shape. I'm glad that, you know, our poster's finally out there a week and a half before the movie was available. <laughs> Thank goodness for yeah, that. It, it, it went through many, many versions. Um, and uh, a lot of the versions, as, as you could probably suspect, looked like a uh, 90s dimension film poster. Right. That triangle of, of faces. But, you know, thankfully, uh, everyone was pretty amenable to doing something a, a little more iconic, a little more metal. And uh, we finally landed upon, you know, the official poster that we're all really pleased with. Alan, what are some of the things you've taken away from this experience that you'll end up sharing with your students at the Film Academy? Uh, it's going to sound odd, but, you know, just having confidence that a film or a script that you think only you will dig Actually, go for it because you'll be surprised. There are a lot more people with the same taste as you. So, uh, you know, the crazier the idea, the more niche the idea, go for it. And, and you'd be surprised. You know, you might form your own little cult around this document. And that cult will then end up growing larger and larger until you've got a film crew and a director and a cast and you're making a movie. So, yes, making, making a film is, you know, not too dissimilar to, uh, you know, creating your own cult. <laughs> only, the only thing is ho hopefully, you know, nothing bad comes of it. <laughs> Very <laughs> nicely yeah. said. You know, scripts are like sometimes a little bit of wish fulfillment. You're like creating the thing you always wished would, would happen. There was a moment where we were shooting that bonfire scene and one of the other producers at four in the morning walks past me as we were playing some Metallica between setups and he goes, this is exactly what I had always fantasized would happen to me when I went to heavy metal concerts when I was a kid. And now I finally get to live it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. I hope, I hope not all of it was what he no, fantasized about. Because it gets kind of the hooking up part. Just the okay. Up. Yeah. <laughs> so moving forward, what else do you guys each have currently in the works? I know we're in the middle of everything's on pause, but gosh. Mark, Mark needs a vacation. Uh, Mark directed three films, basically back to back, right? It was, yeah. we summoned the darkness, human capital, and then he's got a new one for universal that he's editing right now. Yeah. So I, yeah. So right after we, so what do we shot? We summoned the darkness in Winnipeg in September of 2018. 
Mm-hmm. And then in November and December of 2018, I, right when I came back, I started location scouting like a week later for human capital. And then the the day after Liev Schreiber hosted SNL, we were on set together on the first day of filming a human capital. And we shot that. Um, and we, so both of them were in the can by Christmas, 2018, and then both were running sort of concurrently or off and on in edit rooms in New York at the start of 2019 to then premiere at human capital premiered at Toronto and is on VOD. It came out like three weeks ago, two weeks ago. And then this was at a fantastic fest. And then right around that same moment in time, right after Toronto in the fall of 2019, I went to New Orleans and, sh- and directed a movie for Universal called All My Life, starring, Je- starring Jessica Roth from Happy Death Day and Harry Shum, which is a tragic love story. So we're in, we're in, we're on edit right now on that, you know, as we're all quarantined at the same time, working our way through the movie. <laughs> so he's the business cool. director working right now. And yeah, I, I have more projects um, that sort of deal with different subgenres of, of the horror uh, label. Um, there's a, a demonic possession script that sold to Paramount years ago that I just got the rights back to. It's called Sanctuary. It's pretty awesome. It's like The Exorcist meets The Matrix. Oh, uh, wow. And then, yeah. Yes. Uh, two, uh, two TV pilots, because, you know, everyone's going to TV now. Uh, what's about Everyone's oh. going to TV. Yeah, one's about um, a female uh, crime scene cleaner who we find out is actually a cannibal. And uh, cleaning cleaning crime scenes is how she literally puts food on the table. And then the other one is about a girl who's a cinephile who spends all of her days uh, watching uh, movies who's then recruited by a uh, secret sect to uh, start helping them hunt down monsters and serial killers uh, that might have bridged the gap between film and reality. That's amazing. <laughs> I can't yeah, wait to see. You guys mentioned, uh, you guys mentioned TV. Uh, I was just curious, is, is TV going to finally embrace horror? You know, I mean, th- there's a lot of, uh, you know, missteps with, uh, you mentioned like the show, the exorcist, for example, I love that show, but yet it was poorly promoted and, and it was dumped on a time slot where nobody could watch it. Um, most definitely. I mean, I, I was shocked when walking dead became like the highest rated show in tv history i i I couldn't believe it uh and then you know again american horror story is a huge hit so yeah definitely i think people are digging horror on tv for sure character driven horror i think is a great combination for television where you can hang around in this horrifying experience for a long long stretch of time where i think a movie is a lot more like getting shot out of a cannon on in a horror film so i guess It'd be fun to do a horror TV show. <laughs> let's do it, Mark. You and me. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I love all the ideas. So, hey, yeah. let's let's make it happen. We all, we all, everyone now has a lot more time to write during this, this sure. time. So, <laughs> right. the next couple of weeks to open up the typewriter myself or the laptop myself and and get into it. Yeah, typewriter. What are you, Jack Torrance again? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I did email that to a friend the other day. <laughs> All work, no play makes Jack a dull boy. That's great. Makes Mark a dull boy. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for hanging out with us and congrats on the release of this. We summon the darkness available on VOD and digital HD as of April 10th. Thank you again, guys. Thank, thank you guys for the support.
It's been awesome. Thank you. That was the Beer Crew Podcast episode 119. Special thanks to our guests, Alan Trezza and Mark Myers. At time of release, catch We Summon the Darkness on demand and digital today, April 10th. And be sure to check out a special Instagram live Q&A with Alexandra D'Addario today at 6 p.m. PST. Production tracks for this episode provided by Power Man 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying, stay safe, stay healthy, and sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting podcast network. Bye. The bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew. Horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy for disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com/podcasts.